Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. I've met a lot of investors who have been very happy in multifamily. I've met a lot of investors who've been happy in industrial. I think it's just, why would you want to do it is the first question. You need to have a really good answer for that. And once you've answered that question, then it just becomes a, a topic where you just need to learn everything about industrial real estate. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Chad Griffiths, and he's joining us from just up above us in Canada. And he's, he's going to talk to us today about industrial investing, which, which is not a topic that we've really tackled on this show. We spent a lot of time talking about multifamily and residential. We did, we've dabbled in land and a few other things, but I'm really excited to have you here, Chad, to, to teach us about the industrial side. Yeah, so excited to be here, Kent. And where I'm located, I've given a new reference over the last couple of years, which I think a lot of people will understand is I'm kind of straight up from Yellowstone. Yeah, there you go. The, the Dutton family ranch. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody knows where Yellowstone is now, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, very good. So, uh, so Chad, you've been in industrial real estate since 2005, you know, I, I think as a broker and you've completed over 500 transactions. So, so just a wealth of knowledge uh, today. But before we get into the nuts and bolts, just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into industrial real estate and, and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so actually, I started uh, investing in residential real estate when I was going through college. I was in between, in between some jobs. I invested in some real estate with a couple of friends, bought and sold some houses. Didn't really make a lot of money off of it, but it was a good learning experience. Decided I wanted to shift that over to being more of a profession. So I got licensed. I originally joined a residential brokerage. Uh, so I did that for about a year. Realized it just wasn't the career path I wanted to to spend my, my working years uh, in. So I explored getting into uh, commercial real estate in 2005. And uh, as luck would have it, I ended up joining a brokerage which was heavily focused on industrial real estate. And at the time, I, I knew very little about industrial real estate. And, and we could probably get into that as well as it's, unless you have a reason to know about industrial real estate, most people just don't. 
Yeah. But I've been very fortunate that that is how I accidentally got into the businesses. I thought I'd be working in office buildings or perhaps shopping centers. And I've I ended up getting into industrial in 2005. I've been at the same company doing the same thing for the last 16 years or so. Uh, and along the way, I've, I've started investing in my own portfolio. And I've got a, a re- decent sized portfolio now where myself and a few partners have been trying to add a property every single year. Uh, we haven't done any syndications. It's all our own capital in it, uh, b- both our own as well as some of the partners that we've brought in. But you could say that I live and breathe industrial real estate because I work in it all day. I invested in it. I even own some industrial real estate investment trusts, and I read about it extensively. So I am a full-on industrial real estate nerd. <laughs> Perfect. Well, sounds like you're the right guy to to teach us a little bit about it then. So let's start at the top. Just what is industrial real estate? I mean, I I think warehouses. Yeah, great question. And and I've heard this this saying the other day, and it, it made me chuckle. And I'm going to use it uh, going forward as I talk about this. Is that the guy said all I know about industrial real estate is when I make a wrong turn off the highway and I end up in an industrial park. He's like, I have no <laughs> idea where I am. All I'm trying to do is figure out how I get back on the highway. And I think that that is what a lot of people think of, right? Is they think of maybe like a big warehouse. We're all familiar with these big Amazon fulfillment centers that are going up all over town. I'm sure you've got them in in your market as well going up. Uh, So now everybody's more familiar with it because these buildings are right off the highway. For good reason, they want to be close to major roads. They want to be close to the airport or big distribution hubs. So we're all now familiar with these warehouses, but that's really only one segment of industrial real estate. Uh, I I like to break industrial real estate up into three main categories. Uh, The first being warehouses or distribution centers, which everybody's familiar with now. But the other main category is manufacturing properties. And a good example is if we go all the way over to Seattle, the Boeing uh, factory where they make their airplanes. It's a 4 million square foot building. And the whole purpose of that is all the raw materials come into the building. They're manufactured, assembled, turned into airplanes. Then the finished airplane goes out the door. So that's more of like the conventional manufacturing facility. And it can be anywhere from a 4 million square foot facility like Boeing all the way down to a 2000 square foot uh, bay, an industrial bay where someone might just fix kitchen equipment as an example. And I use that example as that was the first industrial uh, property that I ever bought. It was a 2000 square foot industrial condo where the tenant in there just fixed kitchen equipment. So that that wasn't a warehouse in a traditional sense that things are stocked and stored in there. They literally fixed kitchen equipment in there. So they had a full setup to fix stoves and fridges and everything else that broke down in the kitchen. So those would be the two main categories. And then there's also a third category called flex. And that's, that's kind of a catch all for all the properties that aren't strictly for warehousing or for manufacturing. And a good example would be a car dealer dealership. Uh, Typically it's going to be located on a major road because they want to have that retail exposure, but outside of the showroom itself, they have a full uh, building in the back, uh, an industrial building where they work on cars or they might have parts stored in there. They might be doing oil changes or, or just general mechanic work. That's going to be an industrial zoned building that just happens to have retail exposure. So that flex is kind of the catch all for all the other uh, properties that aren't neatly in there. And I'm sure same in your market. If you were to look into it further, you'll see that there's churches and industrial zone buildings, 
bottle depots, self-storage. There's, there's a ton of uses that actually go into these industrial zone buildings that most people don't even think of because they don't have any reason to. They see a building, they just assume that it, it serves the function that it's intended to, but they don't really have any reason to dive deeper into it. Uh, but for those that want to get invested in industrial real estate, that's really the first step is to get a high level overview of what industrial real estate is and then doing a deeper dive into it. Yeah, that that's a, a good advice. That's good advice. And what are some of the sources that that folks can use to uh, like get up to speed on industrial real estate? You said you're reading about it all the time. So I'm just curious. I, I so I read about it daily. Uh, so th there's two websites that I go to. So I'll talk uh, more from a U.S. or global standpoint first, and then my market in Canada. Which depending on where your listeners are, they might not have any any need for going into Canada, but I think it still helps paint the, a good picture. So the main one that I read is globestreet.com and it's G-L-O-B-E-S-T.com. They, they're, they're the best in my mind. They've got, they, they segment everything out into different asset classes. So there, I'm sure there's even sections on multifamily, which, which yeah. I haven't looked at myself, but I'm sure that they break it down into that. And then of course, for what I'm talking about is industrial real estate. So you can go and you can sign up to their newsletter and once a week you'll get a a digest of all the topics that they're talking about with an industrial real estate. And they put a considerable amount of effort into producing these reports. And I always glean insight from it. So that that's one that I check, uh, even in addition to getting the, the digest every week, I check that website every, every day. Uh, and then one in Canada that I, uh, that I read is uh, Renex, R-E-N-X.ca. And for even though people might not have any interest in Canada specifically, there's a lot of high level information that goes into just trends in, in the industrial real estate market, what's happening uh, in a global context, deals that are happening. So those are just two of the main ones. And then if somebody wants to do an even deeper dive, there's some additional websites uh, like naop.com uh, and that's naiop.com. Uh, if you become a member, you have access to even more information, but they still even have publicly available information where they put out a ton of reports as well. Uh, and then there's just some industry associations that people can look into. But I would say for, for someone to avoid getting overwhelmed early, early in that process of just discovering what industrial real estate is, I, if you're in Canada, I'd, I'd look at the renex.ca and Globe Street. And if you're in the US or elsewhere, I would globestreet.com would still be my first recommendation. Gotcha. Well, awesome, Chad. Those are some great resources and we'll make sure those are all linked below for everybody so people can check those out and, and continue to educate themselves on, on industrial. And, uh, you know, as we, one thing you brought up where you brought up trends, kind of staying on top of these trends. And I know one of the trends that I think almost everybody has experienced at this point is kind of the, the e-commerce boom, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I, I can tell you for firsthand information, you know, it's December right now, we're preparing for Christmas. And uh, every time I, I go to my front door, there's like a box fort that's, that's waiting for me with, with more boxes and presents and things that have been delivered. So uh, how has that e-commerce boom or, or development, you know, the rise of Amazon, how has that impacted your space? Yeah, I, I would say that Amazon Prime, when that first came out 10 years ago or whenever it was, that was the the gas on the, on the fire because we'd already seen some some migration away from that traditional brick and mortar retailer to e-commerce. That's been going on for 20 years or so, but Amazon Prime definitely 
accelerated that trend uh, over the past 10 years. And then what we've been dealing with over the last year and a half has accelerated even more, where a lot of people, uh, even even some people that had never done e-commerce before, now were forced to do it if they wanted to get something. So that's accelerated that trend. And that's the reason why that we're hearing all these supply chain bottlenecks right now. Like I'm sure it's all all over North America right now. It's just taking longer to get goods. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's twofold. One demand has ramped up considerably over the last three months and the labor supply hasn't been able to keep up to that. So if we look at, here's, here's one, uh, a story that I that I love telling because it just shows how complex this is on the supply chain on a global scale is that 40% of all goods that come into North America come in through the Los Angeles port. So that's like the Los Angeles and the inland empire, 40% of all goods coming through that port right now. And it's starting to ease a little bit. But at one point, as recently as a week ago, there were over 100, 100 uh, container ships that weren't able to dock. And that's a function of there's not enough warehouse space, there's not enough workers at the port to to take all the product and, and distribute it where it needs to go. There's not enough truck drivers. There's just all these labor constraints that are causing this huge bottleneck where 40% of the goods come in. So anytime 40% of the goods, which is the majority of the market, there's really only five uh, deep water ports along the uh, uh, Pacific coast that, that all the shipments that come from Asia, there's only five ports and 40% comes through that one one or two ports. So when you have a huge bottleneck like that, it starts creating stress through the whole supply chain. And we're seeing that everywhere. We're seeing just how long it's taken to get goods. Uh, what, what's interesting on how it relates to industrial real estate yeah. is if you start looking at, at the vacancy rates in those coastal markets, a lot of them are below 2% right now. And the one the ones in the Los Angeles area, they're, uh, I've just read a report, they're 0.7% vacancy. And, and at that, at that level, there's essentially no vacancy, like there's it's just there'd be small, awkward pockets here and there, or it might be stuff that's already spoken for, which just hasn't hasn't been reflected in that vacancy rate. It's essentially a 0% vacancy rate. And that's causing some companies to actually lease more space than they might want just to avoid it not being there if they expand. Uh, it's causing a real shortage of inventory. And that obviously leads to an increase in prices. So right. I think the buzzword right now is inflation and the feds would like to think that it's transitory. Uh, I, I think that this, this is just starting because now we're going to start seeing all these companies have increased uh, warehouse costs just by function of supply and demand. And I think that's going to work its way further through the inflationary cycle that I, I don't even want to guess what 2022 looks like for inflation. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, just coming from a multifamily perspective, we, we're seeing the exact same thing. There's just a, there's just a dislocation of, of supply and demand where, I mean, it's the exact same situation. There's just not enough housing for, for folks. And so it's just interesting that it's reflected really in, in both of these kind of totally separate uh, in industries and environments. And, uh, but it just, it just seems like you can't build enough, you can't build enough housing. You can't build enough warehouses, apparently. Yeah, it's I, it's that beds and sheds, right? It's I, I think that industrial and multifamily are actually pretty closely related because people need a place to live, no matter what happens in the economy, no matter what happens with all these external factors, people need a place to live. And all these goods have got to get stored somewhere along the line. So it's, it, I would say, 
probably similar to what you experienced going back to like March of last year, where there was uncertainty for the first three months in multifamily. We definitely saw that in, in industrial as well, where people just didn't know what to expect. But after that three months passed, it's been nothing but an upward trend uh, going back to call it August of last year. Yeah. And, and it sounds like from what you're seeing, just these major kind of macro things, the, these supply and demand dynamics, it doesn't sound like that's going to be slowing down anytime soon. There's a lot of inventory that's being proposed. Uh, the last report that I read is something like 600 million square feet of industrial real estate, real estate is being uh, built in the US. But the challenge that we're seeing with getting back to the bottlenecks with supply is it's still taking a long time to get the the materials that you need uh mm -hmm. steel could be a year delay right now uh wood and what, what we all remember about lumber run up earlier in this year that seems to have eased but there's still delays in getting all this stuff so by the time a developer works through the permitting process sets up where they're going to do it what they're going to build working through all the soft processes and then actually start to build it's probably going to be a 18 to 24 month turnaround start to finish so there's the inventory is badly needed but it's just going to take time for it to come online so it's i think a lot of people are speculating that this this problem of having too little inventory much like the multifamily side is going to be a problem that that, that persists going into 2022 perhaps even 2023 and, and from there, do you think, based on what's proposed, do you think things eventually catch up? Do you think we, we catch up and those bottlenecks start to clear? I think that there's, it, it's a matter of time. And in, in general, I'm sure that you've experienced this over your, your tenure as well, is that we have a propensity to overbuild right? It's uh, the, the developers yeah. just see this, this huge amount of, of demand. And they're like, well, we can, we can satiate that supply. So they just overbuild. And, and I'd say that there is a risk of that, just human nature, just developers always like to, uh, to, to build to the amount that's required. And then a little bit of, of a bonus just for, for good measure. I, I would say what, what will cause a ripple will be what happens if, or when e-commerce starts to it starts to slow down their their share of the overall retail spending. But right now we're seeing increases. Their e-commerce is continuing to uh, erode traditional brick and mortar retail share. And as long as that's happening, we're just going to need more warehouse space to, to fulfill all those orders. So I, I would say once we start seeing demand wane for e-commerce, because I think that there's still very good reasons for people to want to go to to tradi traditional stores. I don't see that going away anytime soon. There is going to be a level where people want to go to a store, but they also supplement their retail spending by doing it online. So at some point that's going to have to slow down. All signs are pointing that this could be still like a, a four or five year trajectory easily before we start seeing that, that taper off. But that would be the concern that I would have some point out in the future is that uh, we continue to build at, at a rapid pace. Mm -hmm. And if that e-commerce starts to slow down, that's, that's when I think that there could be someone tapping the brakes and just saying, okay, well, let's, let's reevaluate what this looks like for the next five or 10 year cycle. Yeah. And I think that that makes a ton of sense. And, and I think that's what drives a lot of the real estate cycle, right? Is, is that you, you build and build and build until you've overbuilt and then prices <laughs> drop, right? And then it doesn't make sense to build anymore. And so it slows down and then demand rises. And then I think that that's a lot of the reason why we have those cycles that we go through. So, so I imagine you're, you're right, but to your point, if there's still, I mean, like you said, four or five years ahead of us of, of a pretty uh, distinct supply and demand 
a, a deficiency of supply, then it seems like there, there's still some good opportunities out there to be had. And so what, where I want to go from here is, you know, for folks that are thinking about investing in industrial, you know, what's your advice on, on how they can get started? Great, great topic to explore. And, and I guess the first thing I'd preface it with is that someone needs to have a good reason to consider industrial over multifamily. Like we were talking offline about this is that a lot of people are just familiar with multifamily, right? Like perhaps they owned a couple of houses already as investments and they wanted to scale their portfolio. So it just made sense to go into multifamily. And there's not there's not a huge learning curve that goes from having a few houses to multifamily. There's definitely things that, that you need to take into account. I don't want to discount that, but it's not, a, it's not a, you don't have to learn something brand new. Whereas an industrial, it's a completely different asset class. And I think that there's also a considerable amount of downside risk that can come with industrial. The, the upside, the reason that I've invested in industrial myself is that it's a lot less competitive. There's a lot less people that are aware of industrial as an investment for those reasons, right? There is a lot of downside risk and people that are familiar with multifamily are, are typically going to look at that as, a, as an opportunity. I like industrial because it's less competitive and typically we're going to see better returns. And I, that's a broad statement to make. Every property is going to be different. Someone might buy an unbelievable multifamily property that outperform uh, a poorly uh, positioned industrial property. But overall, and I've, I've invested in both myself. I've, I've had both residential. I've had a small multifamily property and I've transitioned entirely to industrial now. I like it from the standpoint that there's just, there's, there's intangibles that also come with it beyond having less competition. And it's a lot more management friendly. Uh, like as, as a multifamily guy yourself, you, you know how management intensive it is to, to scale up a portfolio. Yeah. And at the beginning, you probably need to actually self-manage it because it just it, economically, it's probably not going to make sense if you only have like a 12 or an 18 unit building until you get to enough scale where you can afford to have a property manager, you're the one doing it. Then you're answering the calls. If something goes wrong in the middle of the night, uh, whereas an industrial, I, it, my partners and I have one property. It's, it's a, about a $3 million property. We have a fortune 1000 company. That's a tenant of ours. We, we don't do anything on that property. Uh, it's beside, they have pre-authorized debit that comes out. So their payments automatically come out. We have no concern about them not making their payment. There's four years left on the lease. They take care of everything. If there's an issue, they deal with it. And from that, that's, that's a very easy management play without having a, the equivalent of call it a $3 million multifamily building where you'd have 20 tenants in it. Uh, so it's a lot less management intensive and it's a lot more predictable. Like we've got a fortune 1000 tenant in there that's in there for four years. Like we, we don't have to turn over tenants every month. We're not having to constantly be looking for new tenants. So that makes it a lot easier. And then I, I think the returns are just better uh, from a cap rate standpoint. I know a lot of the properties in my market for multifamily are trading in that 4% range, whereas industrials 200, 250 basis points higher. Uh, you, you could even be looking at like a seven cap uh, in our market. So I think that that entry level position on what you're buying property at is a little bit better, a little bit more, uh, a lot less management intensive, and there's less competition. But mm -hmm. I, I would stress that whoever is considering and in investing in industrial real estate, they have to have a reason why. And if the reason why is that they want higher returns, then that's doable. Uh, if they're comfortable with, with multifamily and they don't care about having a little bit of an increase, 
uh, which comes with a corresponding amount of increased risk. If they just want to have something that they're comfortable with, then and they they know it, and they don't have to learn a new asset class and everything that goes with it. Multifamily is a fantastic investment. I mean, you've 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 spent your career in there, so you you know the virtues of that uh, better than better than me. But I I've met a lot of investors who have been very happy in multifamily. I've met a lot of investors who've been happy in industrial. I think it's just, why would you want to do it is the first question. You need to have a really good answer for that. And once you've answered that question, then it just becomes a, a topic where you just need to learn everything about industrial real estate. I don't think it's it's something you can just dip your toe in and have a buy one industrial property and add that to your portfolio. I think it's a multi-year commitment where you need to fully understand what industrial real estate is, what it isn't, understand all your downside exposure and get to know your local market or wherever you're investing very, very well. Know what vacancy rates are, know what deals just got done, uh, know what terms are being offered by other landlords, know who's in the market, know uh, what, what the trends are. Like that, that's something that just takes time. It'd be, mm -hmm. it'd be very difficult to just start investing in industrial real estate. So I, I know it's a long-winded uh, answer there, Tim, but I, I would say that's uh, that's generally how I'd say it is, is have a reason why, a reason why you'd want to consider industrial real estate. And if you can answer that question, then start the process of just getting to learn as much as you possibly can about the asset class, as well as the market. Yeah. And I appreciate that answer. I mean, I think you're exactly right. You just got to educate yourself and, and it starts... It starts with, uh, and you're right, probably multi-year process. I mean, I mean, even as I was owning multifamily, it was a similar thing. It was, it was about three and a half years from really learning to to when I felt comfortable and be in the driver's seat uh, on on some mm -hmm. of these deals. And so you have to be willing to dig in. So if somebody decides that you know industrial is the asset for me and uh, they want to start looking at deals, I mean, what are some of the key factors uh, that you look at when evaluating a multi or excuse me, an industrial deal? The first thing that I would recommend is, and what I do myself is I would look at the building as if it were vacant. So even if there is a tenant that's in there for five years or 15 years, like the, the, there, there can be some really long leases in this business, no matter how long the term on the leases, I want to evaluate what that building is worth vacant because there will come a time when there's no tenant in that building, uh, whether the lease just naturally expires and the tenant doesn't renew or if the tenant goes bankrupt and they just can't pay their bills, there's all types of scenarios where that property could be vacant. Uh, ideally, you're buying a property that that you don't have that issue. But the first process I'll always do is understand what that property is worth vacant. And I think that's an important exercise because you'll then go through the motions of comparing that property to other properties on the market. And if the property has some fundamental issue and, and an easy one to point to an industrial would be the ceiling height. A lot of modern buildings right now are getting 36, 40 foot clear ceiling heights, sometimes even higher. If you have an old property called a 30, 40 year old property, that might only have 20 foot clear ceiling heights. So I, I, I like the exercise of evaluating what that property would be worth empty. And that could be, what would I sell it for if it was empty? And then what could I release it for? And once you have an understanding of what your building is, what some of the weaknesses might be, maybe some of the strengths as well, and you can, you can confidently make an assessment of what you could release that property for, then you can start doing your underwriting on, on how you could actually make sense of the economics with what's already there. But first thing I always do is I want to I make sure I have my downside risk covered. I'm a pretty conservative investor myself, so I would rather 
I, I would rather make sure that my exposure is mitigated as opposed to start dreaming about how big my returns can be. Because there's so many factors beyond our control as well, right? Like we, how many times have, has there been surprises over the last year and a half that we couldn't have accounted for? Right, there's, right. there's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's just so many things, right? So I'm a big believer that you can, you can make a five or a 10 year pro forma, but you're making a lot of assumptions in there. So to have these big expectations that you're going to make call it like a 15% IRR based on all these assumptions, which may or may not happen, or there could be curveballs, that that's to me seems like that the optimistic dreamer side, right? Like if everything goes according to plan, we're going to make a 15% IRR. I would much rather say if everything goes down the toilet, my exposure is 15%, mm -hmm. just using an arbitrary number on going through that exercise of what I could lease it for if it went vegan. If I can, if I know what my downside risk is, and I'm comfortable having that downside risk, then I can start being that, that little bit of the optimist being like, okay, if everything goes right, here's, here's how exciting this project can be. But again, I'm not raising money in a, in a syndicate as a sponsor. I'm, I'm putting all my own money into it. So mm -hmm. I think there's some investors that would have more of an appetite for risk. And they would probably say like, let's, let's get something where we can, we can reasonably forecast this out. That's just my model. And, and I think for especially first time investors getting into industrial real estate, I would think that they would want to have comfort that their downside risk is protected, at least in that first investment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great way to, to look at it, you know, very conservative and, uh, you know, but, but that's the, I, I think that's the right way to, and, and like you said, people often don't think about, uh, they think about the upside and, and the shiny number that's out there, but, but not the other side of the fence and what that downside exposure is. And, and I know you mentioned a couple of times, uh, even saying that industrial can have higher returns, for example, than multifamily, but also comes with the Kind of associated higher risk as well. So can you explain that a little more and kind of what, what drives uh, kind of in your point of view, that, that higher risk? I'll, I'll give an actual example of a property that, that I had bought uh, as a second industri industrial property that I bought. Uh, it was a industrial condo uh, and the neighboring company actually owned that bay. And so they were a seafood distributor. Uh, they owned their bay. They needed to expand, but they couldn't afford to buy their unit. So they uh, wanted to, to rent it. So myself and a partner bought that uh, and did a five-year lease with them. And right after we bought it, they converted it to like a, a full cooler for all their seafood stuff. So there was a giant cooler in there. They spent 250 grand or something getting this cooler done all at their own cost. And we thought we're brilliant here. Like we're going to have a the company that owns the next door bay just put 250 grand of, of their own money into this. Either we can keep renewing them forever or they'll just end up buying it. Uh, when, and this was this five years just expired like last year. Uh, and they, they totally called our bluff on it. They said, we're, we're not interested in, in staying in this. We're looking at another option uh, down the road where we're going to move our, our, our whole operation to. And we were stuck in a position where we had a, a bay with, that just had a giant cooler in it. There wasn't a washroom. There's was no offices in there. So we went through the exercise. This was after the fact. And this, this is what's formed my basis of checking this before you get into a transaction versus at, at the stage we were put in is that we started looking around and saying, well, we're probably gonna have to put 50 to 60 grand in improvements, getting bathrooms and washrooms and uh, decommissioning that cooler, filling any concrete work that we had we conservatively estimated 60 to 50 to 60 grand. 
And then we started walking through the process of the, if they leave, how long is it going to take us to find another tenant? Are we going to have leasing commissions? Are we going to have any other TIs that, that are needed to be done? So they totally called, called us out on it. And we ended up selling it for about 15% less than what we had bought it for five years early. And nobody buys real estate to sell it for 15% less five years down the road. Like that's just not a good game plan for long-term success. <laughs> not a solid business. strategy, right? It's not a solid strategy. Had we done the exercise of, of asking ourselves, well, what is the worst case scenario when we bought it? And if we would have said, well, we would have to decommission the cooler, we'd have to build out all this stuff. If we had done that exercise at the beginning, we probably wouldn't have bought it uh, just because the risk would have been too great. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, that's what people really need to be prepared of is, uh, and that's why I'm such a big proponent of just checking what that property is worth vacant. Even if you have a triple A AAA tenant in there, uh, that's got five years left on it, that space could become available in five years. And yeah. it could be a property that's versatile and could be easily released, or they could extend and renew in perpetuity. But there is the risk that that property could become vacant. So the huge, huge upside, if you hold real estate of any type over a long enough period of time, I, th I think we've all proven that, but you need to have time on your side. And with an industrial, if you have a property that's, that was specifically built for the tenant and it's hard to release, you could have a property that's vacant for a long time. So that, that's where I would say just be very cognizant and, and diligent when you're looking at a property, even if it is leased out. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, I guess what I took away from that is uh, you said like specifically built for the tenant. So if you, if you come across a, a property where it is so specific like that, like it's a giant cooler because mm -hmm. it's a seafood company, right. But, but that really wouldn't serve a purpose for, for most other tenants, then you've got to look at that as, okay, what's it, what would it take to get rid of that? And then on the other end, add the other tenant improvements, like, like you said, bathrooms, offices, other things, right, to make it usable for somebody else. And so you've got to be factoring in thinking about that as you think about uh, your lease turnovers and things, right, and, and that extra cost that could come with that. Exactly. Yeah, very, very well said on that. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that that is just the, the best approach that someone could take to avoid those huge, huge losses. Like, we, I mean, 15% didn't kill us by any means. And, and we had yeah. cash flowed over the over the five years, and we paid down some mortgage. So it wasn't, it wasn't detrimental by any means. But if, if we would have multiplied that size of that property by 10, uh, that, that would have been a very, very stressful situation for us. Yeah, but that's how you, that's how you live and learn, right? You make little mistakes, not not big mistakes, and you and you learn along the way. So yeah. I appreciate you sharing that with us because I think that's a great in, insight for the listeners. Just kind of along the same same lines as that as your, so that's one thing to definitely pay attention to. Are there what are some other major factors that you look at when evaluating a property? And maybe because I know you're familiar with multifamily too, maybe some that are that are different than what you would think of in like a residential type of investment. Yeah, I, I, one area that comes up quite often is whether it's a multi-tenant or a single tenant building. Uh, there's there's investors that look at both of those in different lenses in, in industrial. Uh, some like having multi-tenant buildings because it offers a little bit of diversification. If one tenant leaves, there's however many more that are still uh, conceivably there until it's released. Uh, the flip side of that is that some investors just really like single tenant buildings because they have one tenant to manage. And typically it's just going to be a larger tenant. So you don't have that credit risk uh, that might come with uh, 10 smaller tenants. So there's, it really comes down to personal preference on, on how it is in our portfolio. We have both, we have, we have that one property that's, that has a single tenant in it, 
uh, everything else that, oh, sorry, one, one condo, that first one that we bought, that has a single tenant in it just because it's pretty small. Everything else that we own now is multi-tenant. So I, I think it just comes down to, you need to have a thorough understanding of, of what you're buying. And I'm personally a big believer in investing in my market. I can drive to every one of the properties that, that we own in 20 minutes. So I can see those properties. I know our market intimately. I, I study this regularly. I consider myself a bona fide expert in our market. So I, I have my finger on that proverbial pulse of, of what's happening. Uh, and I think as long as you are comfortable with the property that you're buying and you're comfortable with the long-term prospects of the market that you're in, I, I think you just need time on your side. I, I, I think that, and a little bit of luck, I suppose, like if we all need a little bit of luck from, from time to time, but if you're an expert in what you're buying, you're an expert in the market and you've got enough time to, to spend in it. I, I, I think, you, I think you can have a good run on, on any asset class, really, if you combine those ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. And you put in the effort, time and effort. Yep. So are there, uh, are there any other pitfalls uh, maybe you've experienced yourself or, or you've seen others go through, you know, as, as you're brokering these deals that, that you can uh, share with us to help, help folks avoid? Uh, so, yeah, I can actually. Uh, one, one story is an investor who bought an industrial building, uh, call it 20 minutes outside of the major metropolitan area that, that we're in. Uh, so we've got our, our city is about a million people. Uh, this small town would be considered like the greater area of our, of our city, but it's still 20 minutes outside. So it's, it's got that small town feel to it. He bought a property that had a really solid tenant in there. Uh, they had four years left on their lease, two years into the, his purchase of it. They let him know that they were no longer uh, going to be staying there. So they actually vacated the building. They had a lease, so they've been continuing to make uh, lease payments on it, but it's now been vacant for, uh, memory serves, a year and a half, and they've been trying to sublease it. They've been trying to find uh, tenants, but because it's in a small market, there's just not a big appetite for that type of property there. So he's now going to be in this uh, position where when the lease comes up and he stops making uh, those rental payments that the company's still making, he's now going to have a, a vacant building, which is going to be very hard to, to release or sell. So he's that, that, like, that's, that's a terrible situation to be in, in my mind. So yeah. I would say a, 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 the bigger the market, the better, just because there's a bigger pool of potential tenants to tap into. And I mean, you can make some reasonable assumptions just based on the vacancy rate. If the vacancy rate is 5%, then you got, you've got a pretty good idea of, of, what your chances of leasing it are in a small market. It's a lot harder to even uh, discern what the vacancy rate is because there might only be a handful of properties uh, to gauge it off. So I, I, I personally wouldn't invest in a small market. I would stick to like a big industrial market. And, and I mean, they're all over the U S like I, I look at markets, like, like even inland markets, like Chicago, Nashville, uh, uh, what are some other ones like Atlanta, Dallas, like these big cities, like to me, if, if you lived in that city already and you knew it well, that'd be a natural place to, to start exploring in my mind. But I would, I would stay away just again, anecdotal, uh, experience other people yeah. could be successful, uh, doing otherwise, but I would personally stay away from the small markets for industrial. Gotcha. I mean, Great tip. If you, the, the bigger the market, the, the larger the buyer pool and, and the more, uh, you know, the more opportunities to have, uh, you know, a tenant that's going to be interested. Right. I mean, Absolutely. Makes complete sense. Well, awesome, Chad. Thank you so much for, for being here today. Before I let you go, I want to take you through our keys to success round. I got four questions I'm going to ask you. The Sounds first good. one is, so 
if you were a passive investor, say you're investing with, with, in somebody else's deal, you know, you're giving them their, their money and they're going to be running it. And you could only ask them one question. What would that one question be? Uh, great, great, great question. I would say what, what other projects have you done? I, I would, I'd want to see their track record uh, to see what their, what their success is, because I think I could look at at their track record, providing they gave me enough information, I think I could make a, like a reasonably good inference on on how well that they've done and what they would continue to do. I, I but yeah, that'd be my first thing. Let me see your track record. Gotcha, that's a great one. What are you most proud of in your career? I would say, I, I would I would say one that jumps to mind is that uh, we bought our own building, so we're we're predominantly an industrial real estate brokerage, like I mentioned earlier, and so our office is. It's in an industrial park, but it's on a, a main road. So we've got some retail exposure for an industrial building. Uh, and two years ago, we bought that building and we're just in the process of doing a full renovation. So full exterior renovation, full interior renovation, new roof. Like we've put a considerable amount of time and money into this. And I think that that is going to be an awesome building where we're moving furniture in actually today. So I think that that'll be like a really cool feather in the cap when uh, other brokers are you know working in perhaps like in a downtown office building and you know they pay pay for parking i think it'll be a cool feather in the cap when people pull up and they see this essentially brand new building and like yeah yeah i, I own uh, 25 of that so I, I that that's probably probably what i'm most proud of actually right now yeah that's very cool that's very cool what's a book that everybody should read I, I'm a I'm a huge reader. Actually, I usually read a, read a book a week. One, if if somebody's interested in industrial real estate, and I just read this one a couple of weeks ago, is called Fulfillment, and it's it's written by a journalist who who looks at the distribution, the advancement of distribution, anyways, uh, through a critical eye, through like how you'd expect a journalist to. And it's, it was pretty eye-opening for me to, when you see how Amazon has expanded all across the world and how, how they've used a lot of leverage for just the size of their company to extract tax incentives uh, and uh, just incentives across the board to develop all these fulfillment centers. And then how, how a lot of the jobs that they're creating are actually like poorly paid jobs. Uh, like they're, they're not a lot higher than minimum wage in some places. And that was, that was a little bit eye-opening to me where I was just like, okay, well, yes, this everything looks great. And I like to be a optimistic guy, but I think there, there needs to be some, some realistic expectations that go in there as well Is that all these jobs that, that are being created and, and all this thought that these things are creating all this tax base for municipalities to create revenue through, through property taxes, that might be a bit of smoke and mirrors because they might've been able to negotiate 15, 20 year uh, a tax uh, free tax terms. Mm -hmm. And then they're creating like these poor paying jobs. And they, they pointed to a couple of examples on how there's been uh, complete retrofits of, of areas that used to pay like really high paying jobs for like a industrial plants and manufacturing. And now the workforce that's there, that's being forced to accept these factory jobs are, are taking like a, a third or half of what they were making 20 years ago. So I, I just thought that that was a really eye-opening one. I don't think anyone's going to come away with any any huge market knowledge or any insights into it. But I think myself anyways, I like hearing the other side of the story. So I don't live in this echo chamber where I just think things are great all the time. I do want to hear that other side of the story. And mm -hmm. and for something that I spend all my time in, just hearing that that other side of the story was pretty pretty interesting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can tell you're a smart investor because you, you do care about the downside and you're looking for, for those. I mean, it, right now in the market that we're in, I think in real estate in general, and mo most asset classes, at least, I mean, there's, there's a lot of tailwinds. We're, we're hitting all-time highs uh, on sale prices and rents and, and everything else. So it's difficult at times to, to find those or to think about the, you know, the other side of things and that it, it's not mm -hmm. always real estate doesn't always go up, uh, even though uh, it, it kind of seems like it does. So I, I appreciate that perspective. And, and uh, that book sounds like a provides some good perspective on on the potential uh, risk in uh, in industrial real estate. So that's a great it was find. very well written, too. So it's just it was actually like a really easy read. Yeah, well, that that makes it easy. You know, if you can, especially if you're crushing a book a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what are you so Chad, what is your number one key to success? Uh, number one, I would say, well, if I could give like a 1A and a 1B and break the rules on your question a bit, uh, I think 1A is, is relationships. Uh, I, I think that there's no, I, I would definitely point to the amount of people that I've got to know over my career as being the main factor, uh, just because there's, there's people that you need in this process. You need lawyers, you need accountants, you need, you need referral partners, you need bankers, you need partners to come in with stuff. Uh, so I would say that that has been 1A and then 1B is just becoming an, an expert in the market. Uh, I, I think to some extent, people would almost do that organically if they're just working in it all the time. But I just made a commitment early in my career that I wanted to be like the guy that just knew as much as I possibly could. So I, I think that that's, that's a good recipe for success is, is get to know as many people as you can by building solid relationships and just become an expert. And, and I think that those, those two things give you the best opportunity for success. Yeah, I think that's incredible advice. I mean, I say this all the time. It's real estate is a relationship business for, first and foremost. I mean, that that's what really matters. So great advice. And, and I can understand how you've been so successful. And Chad, thanks so much for coming on. If, if folks want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so I, as you could tell, I love talking about industrial real estate. I started a YouTube channel about a year ago. Uh, and I've just my approach with it is I just want to give away as much information and value as I can. Uh, if you watch any of my videos, you'll see, I don't talk about my market. I don't talk about, I don't even talk about where I live or who my company is because I don't want to take away from the fact I'm just trying to provide as much information as I can. So I, I think I've done 80 videos in combination with just talking about industrial real estate and interviewing industrial experts. Uh, so if you just search Chad Griffiths, or if you can just search industrial real estate on YouTube, I'm pretty much the only one that's talking about it regularly. So you'll find my videos on there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that, that folks have access to that in the show notes. And thank you once again, Chad, it was uh, very enlightening. I learned something new today. And so uh, as always, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Yeah, those are great questions, Ken. Thanks so much again for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.